This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest edition of the Equalizer podcast. I'm Pardeep Katri, and we're going to be wrapping up the She Believes Cup, which was won by the U.S. once again. We're going to do things a little bit differently today. We're going to focus segment one on the USWNT and a little bit of tangential things. Um, and the second segment will be about Canada. But for our first segment, you'll, I have with me someone who I imagine all of you are very familiar with, Jeff Kasouf. Hi, Jeff. How are you? Hey, Pardeep. Good. How are you? Not too bad myself. Let's dive right in. The USWNT finished the She Believes Cup with a 6-0 win over Argentina. Pretty straightforward in that regard. I don't think a lot of people are surprised by that. But uh, they went up 4-0 in the first half. Megan Rapino scored twice. Carly Lloyd scored. And then Christy Mio scored to cap off the first half. And then in the second half, Kristen Press and Alex Morgan scored. Alex Morgan scored her first USWNT goal since uh, returning from maternity leave. Like I said, Jeff, I don't think people are particularly surprised by the result or the performance, but what stood out for you? Yeah, I think, um, you know, this obviously would have been a quite different game with the original opponent of Japan. Um, so, you know, I think this one was about the roster rotation. We saw, uh, you know, Vlako Andonovsky said before the game, it was about, you know, maybe seeing some people and getting them some time so he could evaluate them and then also just rotating a little bit. So, you know, I think Christy Mewis being in there for, the amount of time she was um, is certainly, you know, a further indication. I've seen her referred to as a bubble player or, a, or a, I think long shot was one of the ones that got a little bit of attention this past week, but, you know, again, these things can change. Obviously it's um, we're, we're just turning the calendar to March, but the idea that, you know, if, again, I say that I've said this about Lynn Williams in a different way, but like, if you've been paying attention and watching and listening to what Vladko Andonovsky is saying that he wants and doing, and, you know, Christy Mewis is very firmly in this picture, which is again, a, you know, we can say again, a wild thing to think about from a year ago, but um, so I, th I think that's one. And then, you know, the fullback situation is one that we always look at. I don't know if we got any clear answers. I mean, Casey Kruger came in for the half. We found out afterward that was planned because that's what she was fit for. Kelly O'Hara only played the 30 minutes because that's what she was fit for. You know, mid-purse Emily Sonnet getting time there throughout the tournament. And, you know, again, you've got Crystal Dunn on sort of her own platform and level there. You've got Kelly O'Hara who, when healthy, is, you know, in that, you know, on that level. But um, the, the when healthy is the big asterisk. And then after that, you know, depth wise, um, it, it's not even so much that the quality of player drops off, although certainly, you know, from done, I would say so. Yes. But um, the type of player really changes. So I don't know if we got the answers there, but we, you know, we got to see some more options there 
yet again against Argentina. And, you know, you're talking about rotation. Jane Campbell got to play again. She seems to be, for now at least, uh, Vlatko Andonovsky's preferred backup to Alyssa Nair. Yeah, you know, I think obviously with with Ashlyn Harris being out of camp, and, and I think we can't, you know, Vlatko Andonovsky said um, that it wasn't anything to do with the fact that Ashlyn Harris and Ali Krieger were welcoming a baby home in the middle of this tournament. But obviously, I think even if they were going to call Harrison. Um, that would have been, you know, something that would have occupied her and rightfully so. So, um, you know, I think we've, we've seen Campbell now. Yes. Get these opportunities. You know, it's tough to say, I think goalkeeper probably as much as anybody. Um, and I, I say this a lot, but like the number of training camps, um, training camp, um, training sessions really that exist, you know, far outnumber the number of games that we see. So, um, you know, I think particularly at the goalkeeper position where we don't see nearly as much change uh, in general, that it's hard to say, like, like, what do we know of where Casey Murphy stands, right? Uh, just mm-hmm. as an example, because we haven't seen her in a match um, and we don't really know what's happening in training. It could be a distant third, fourth, fifth. It could be knocking on the door of Jane Campbell even. So, um, I think it's a little bit tough at the goalkeeper position, but yes, obviously the fact that Campbell got the minutes now, again, I mean, back to the point of the opponent changing, I mean, I would have much rather seen her against Japan where she would have had some action. Yeah, for sure. Um, that also makes me think about just the whole roster picture for the Olympics. Um, one thing that I've talked about on previous podcasts, and I think a lot of us have just been talking about generally is the fact that there are a lot of forwards competing for very few roster spots. And, you know, we're talking about just the center forward position alone. Alex Morgan and Carly Lloyd are still competing for that same spot. And Alex Morgan has now gotten, I think, her first extended look at the, with the national team since returning from maternity leave. How do you think she did and how do you think the battle for that spot or just those forward spots in general is going? I think a little bit more difficult to assess uh, and a bigger picture just because of the opponent. I mean, certainly she looked back to kind of, you know, the, the player that we might expect um, or, or have come to know obviously. And, and, you know, I've, I've talked about written about, and, and I think we've seen a lot of that. That's more than just, um, you know, the, the quote unquote baby horse of 10 years ago, that was just player in behind and let her run. Uh, she certainly evolved from that. And, you know, that's in that sense, I, I think Alex Morgan and Carly Lloyd play that position somewhat similarly, uh, you know, Morgan's still more of a threat on that kind of long run in behind per se, but um, both of them, I think in both cases really don't get enough credit. And and these are not the things that we like to highlight, right. Whether it's a, a literal highlight or just kind of statistics we're, we're looking at, but both are players who want to check down and hold the ball up, combine, let those wide forwards, oppress or Rapino, Williams, you know, let them run in behind. And those are not things that I, I think they get a lot of credit for, but do really well, both of them. So I think similar profiles in that sense, um, you know, Katarina Macario, where she fits in that picture is obviously a question mark because we don't know exactly where, 
you know, her ideal position will be, that's going to be a long-term question, but in terms of the, the Olympics, that's, you know, something to, to figure out at least for the short term, if she's going to be in that picture. So I think she adds a little bit of, um, I don't know if complication is the word, but, you know, adds a little bit to that conversation at the number nine. And then, you know, you have those wide forwards who, um, at least in the case of Williams, obviously, and, and press, um, particularly can, slide into a number nine or, or are known to sort of drift inward from those wide positions. And remember, we're talking about all of this without Tobin Heath being available and she'll be back probably before the Olympics, but yeah, <laughs> a lot of players. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean the forward position, I, th- I think this has been the thing right for a long time. I mean, there's not add in Williams here, but other than that, this is pretty much, you know, the, pr- the good problem that the U S has had for a long time. It's just, you know, really deep at forward. Um, and, and that being kind of a general term, I'll, I'll plug our series that's been ongoing. The forward is a very general term. And we've kind of been looking at um, how those are, positions are played differently, whether, you know, the nine or the 11 or the seven, and even within those, how players play them differently. So, um, you know, I think it's the, the thing I would point out again, and I, I've seen the negative feedback to this and maybe to the player, um, but it's worth reiterating because it's part of the Carly Lloyd conversation too. Um, and probably the Alex Morgan conversation, like forwards in Vlako and Anofsky system. Yes, they need to score goals. That's in any system. If you're not going to score, then that's a problem. But um, more so than the previous system under Jill Ellis, more so than in a lot of different um, setups that other teams and coaches have, they have to be able to play on both sides of the ball and defend and press and have the fitness for that and have the capabilities for that. So, you know, that's a huge, huge piece of the Lynn Williams conversation. And I think it's an element again, that maybe Carly Lloyd doesn't get enough credit for in terms of her work rate and and defensive um, commitment, at least at the very least, and probably the same for Alex Morgan. Um, If I could press you, do you think anyone edges out anyone else right now? Or do you think anyone out of this very talented group will probably be on the outside looking in or will be at the Olympics? <laughs> um, Is it look, too early to call? <laughs> I mean, look, I- I'm sure I'm going to get booed for this on the other side of the the screen, but I mean, I, you know, we're turning on, you know, it's March one basically. Right. So to me, you know, we've got Carly Lloyd who didn't play for almost a year that we're still trying to figure out, you know, where is she at? Um, Alex Morgan, somewhat similar, you know, at least for the national team, um, similar sort of thing, um, you know, first goal in a year and a half. So you've got that, you've got Rapino coming back from injury. You've got Tobin Heath, as you said, now injured. So as much as it might sound like a cop-out, I mean, to me, with the, the amount of talent that you have and you're dealing with, obviously injuries are going to be something that, you know, you, you might have to deal with at any given time, but we're in that stage for a lot of these players where they're, whether it's injury or layoff, you know, obviously pregnancy for Alex Morgan. I mean, all of these players, there's a good number of this group, even throwing Katerina Macario, if we want to talk about her in the forward sense, just getting into the scene, only a couple of caps. Um, I think there's so much of that needing to see a little bit more. And we, we just saw at least, um, we don't know the opponents yet, but you know, the sort of schedule that's being laid out of a couple games in April, uh, a tournament of nations there in June. So I think that's where 
Uh, by June, obviously, I think we'll have the roster. But certainly, I think these April games will probably tell us a lot. And to your point, Pardeep, we still won't even be seeing Tobin Heath in them. So um, I think this is something that will probably – I think Vlaco's got the idea in his head to a degree, but you have to have that ABC because, um, you know, look look how much things have rotated even just with injuries, one's up, one's down. Yeah, for sure. Um, do you think any players maybe didn't make a good case for themselves during this tournament? Or do you think the sample size was too small and there's still a lot of games to be played? Well, yes. I mean, certainly I would agree with the, the sample size, but I would say, you know, Katarina Macario, um, unfortunately, you know, left camp early, played uh, the one match. I don't think had a particularly great game. I think that was a really a poor game for the U.S. overall and certainly – on the finishing side. And there were a couple of opportunities, particularly from her, um, which again is not, I, I don't mean to say that as I'm harping on them for a player with three caps and, and getting those opportunities. But um, you know, I think there were, there was the chance to maybe, you know, Hey, let's, let's see if she finishes one of these. If, you know, I think that it was not as a, it's not as clean of a performance as what we saw. And maybe this was the excitement of the debut, right. But of what we saw against Columbia. Um, so in that sense, I, I'm not going to say that she hurt her case, but I, I don't think she necessarily helped it in the little bit of time that we saw by any means. And, you know, obviously in a crowded position um, and fullback, you know, the fullback conversation is still muddled because we, I don't know that anybody did really make their case. I mean, you have these, you know, this ongoing thing, Emily Sonnet, you know, some, some good sort of moments. And then also these moments where, um, you know, caught up high, maybe caught out crystal Dunn with that sort of tackle that everybody wanted to focus on was a recovery tackle after that right side broke down. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know that any of the fullbacks really helped themselves. Casey Kruger only getting the 45 minutes, uh, Midge purse. I thought, you know, similarly, and she said post game, you know, I think we, I would have liked to see a lot more from her offensively, um, creatively there against Canada, where I think, you know, in the system, the fullbacks are asked to do these things. And it was a little bit too one dimensional in attack from her where, you know, it was very clear that Alicia Chapman kind of had her number uh, in that one V one battle. And there wasn't the, wherewithal or maybe just the reaction to say, all right, I can't get in line. I'm going to cut back, or maybe I need to combine and one, two here to get around her because the dribble is not working. So I don't know that any fullback helped their case, which doesn't help that conversation <laughs> at all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, before we transition out of the, she believes cup, obviously the U S won again, it's their fourth time winning the tournament, but they did face some pretty strong tests in Canada and Brazil. Do you think that they still are the team to beat for the gold medal? And do you think that there are probably a couple of other teams that could really challenge them for it? Yes, to both. I mean, certainly I think have to be continue to be a, a clear favorite um, just coming off of, you know, the 2019 performance and saying, I think in general, I think you could call this She Believes Cup a little bit, sluggish at times from them or a little bit um i don't know if sloppy is quite the word but certainly in the final third maybe disappointing but you know even given that i think ali wagner made very good points on the broadcast that this is 
this is the cycle we're used to. I mean, I'm thinking of 2015 and 2019. It's January or February and the U.S. goes and plays and, and maybe goes to France in those cases. And we, we say like, oh my gosh, they, they kind of looked bad there. And then, <laughs> you know, March comes around, April, okay, you know, maybe it's starting to click, but we're still skeptical from like that February performance. And then it starts to come together in the summer. So I think we're used to that cadence, but um, I, I would say still the favorite, despite maybe some some sluggishness in the She Believes Cup. Um, and, and yes, with that said, I mean, you know, the Olympics, even more so than the World Cup, I think, because of the structure of it and the tight turnarounds and, you know, eight of 12 teams going through. Um, I think the Olympics, maybe even more so than the World Cup, can be a little bit of a, a crapshoot to some degree where I think you can manage the world cup a little bit more precisely than you can in Olympics right down to the roster size. So favorite. Yes. Um, I mean, that said, you know, same deal, I think could easily win a gold medal could just as, you know, just as much could see another quarterfinal exit because, you know, who knows what, what you're up against at that stage. Yeah. I mean, one of the teams that was at the She Believes Cup Brazil, I thought they were probably after the U.S., the most impressive team there. And I think for a lot of us, it was the first time or one of the first times looking at Pia Sundhaga coaching this team. Yeah. And I, you know, again, I say it, but I really would have loved to see Japan in this tournament because I wanted to see more from Brazil against that quality of opponent with, with no disrespect to Argentina by any means, but um, you know, the, Brazil, I think, is if we're talking about teams that could challenge, and I think we'll look to, uh, I mean, you, you would look at the past World Cups and even the most recent one, and you'd say England slash, you know, Great Britain in this case. But with what's going on there with the coaching transition and uncertainty, I think that's going to be a huge factor. So I look at Brazil as potentially, you know, and again, maybe host Japan um, as teams that are probably among the biggest challengers. And, and I think Brazil, Brazil is super interesting. We saw some of it here in this World Cup, or sorry, this She Believes <laughs> Cup. Um, you know, Pia Sunaga is a perfect match for them in terms of like a fun personality that matches that kind of Brazilian style of play, but then also is kind of this traditionally defensive-minded coach. Um, it's it's a little bit funny to see them playing like a basic four four two in some ways that she's kind of you know bringing that to so so there she's I think I would like to think anyway maybe it's like a romantic idea but that that she is almost like that perfect balance of letting them do what they are good at a Dabinia, a Marta even Cristiani still around you know some of the newer players uh, Ludmilla um, and, and letting them do what they are great at, but also instilling in them some defensive discipline and, and some tactical nuance that takes them from a team that's kind of disappointingly out of a quarterfinal stage to, you know, a team that is legitimately a gold medal threat. Yeah. And that way I found the tournament to be fascinating enough in its own right. Maybe, like, uh, you know, I think maybe at times struggled a little bit for competition, but I think for me, it was like a reintroduction to what international soccer is about. And I enjoyed that aspect of it. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I know um, I'll leave the uh, specific Canada expertise to our 
uh, Canada expert, Arjit, but I, I was, you know, I was so encouraged as someone who's been pretty tough on Canada through the years. Um, and certainly they've been in a huge slump post world cup and, you know, that performance against the U S was like, wow, you know, then maybe they can turn this into something. And then the two performances that followed it up, uh, I know young players missing some key starters, but the, the um, juxtaposition of those, the lack of consistency between those performances is uh, again, a little bit mind boggling, but I'll, I'll leave the Canada talk to you both for after this. Yep. So like I teased earlier, we are going to talk a little bit about the NWSL. Um, do you want to talk about the big ticket item first, or should we talk about uh, the Federation players? Uh, let, uh, back to our conversation a little bit on the roster for the USWNT. I guess that's a, a natural sort of bridge is, you know, the, the uh, Federation players, um, the list you know, I think we knew some of it was coming, right? We we had, I mean, I had reported Lindsey Haran taking that deal and then Meg Linehan reported Crystal Dunn also taking that and the Thorns are uh, leading the way, I guess, in, in this transition away from U.S. soccer paying players, which um, is really complicated math. And I'll direct you to our article on it because I, if I try to summarize it, it'll take 20 minutes. Um, <laughs> but basically, you know, depends who you talk to on how quick this transition might happen, but you know, maybe next year, maybe a couple of years. Um, but that opens up, you know, the fact that those two took NWSL standard contracts from Portland meant that some spots opened up. So, you know, I, I think um, Jane Campbell, Christy Mewis, Midge Purse, obviously are, are big ones. Andy Sullivan, I, I think a deserved one going on there. Um, I would just kind of reiterate, you know, some quick tweets that I had sent, like a Federation player getting that status doesn't, mean anything in regards to like, okay, does this mean they're going to the Olympics? You know, that that's, there's, there's a lot more sort of business CBA structural there. Um, obviously somebody getting selected for that means that they are held in high regard, but it doesn't really mean anything in, in regards to the roster. But um, yeah, I think, you know, a few interesting things within that, obviously. Yeah. And also even if you're on the, uh, list of federation players. There are only 18 players. I can go to the Olympics and there are way more than 18 players listed as federation right. players. So, and I think the two, and there are two uh, people who were federation players last year, but aren't this year, Morgan Gutro uh, and uh, Ali Long. But I think those, that's less surprising considering they're standing with the national team over the last year. Right. And I, I guess in reverse too, we should say Lynn Williams back on allocation, back on federation status, excuse me, um, was, is an interesting one because um, I've done some reporting about this and it's, it's really kind of complicated, but um, you know, she had gotten a six figure annual, six figures annual deal from North Carolina. And then there's a change because the NWSL season is longer and the way it's written in the CBA, there's a huge jump by about over 20,000 in terms of what a Federation player will get paid in 2021. So by her, basically what the courage and Williams did was she took the Federation offer, which if she's tier one, I, I don't know if we know, I'm not positive at this time of recording, which one she is, but like tier one would be 99,000 
ballpark. Um, and, you know, take that for 2021, they restructured her deal for 22, 23. So she basically keeps kind of what, what she had as a deal, which is, you know, in the hundred thousand plus range with, you know, incentives and whatnot. But, um, so, so it's an interesting sort of, it's the flip side of juggling it, you know, North Carolina doing that, freeing up a little bit of cap space for them. Whereas Portland signing Dunn and Haran direct actually hurts them on cap space, but in theory gives them more control over the players in a way, um, sets up a more traditional structure. And even though I don't think they will say this or want to say this, I mean, potentially helps them in the expansion draft, but of course, we don't know how that's going to look because they haven't written the rules yet. So who knows if it actually helps them. And uh, to the point of the other news, part deep, um, what is that expansion draft going to look like? <laughs> so um, this is actually initially MLS news, but uh, naturally there's an NWSL connection. So on Friday night, MLS announced that the expansion team that was scheduled to join, I believe in 2023 in Sacramento will no longer be part of the league. In their press release, they said that uh, Ron Burke told them that based on issues with the project related to COVID-19, he decided not to move forward with the acquisition of an MLS expansion team in Sacramento. And we got information right before the draft earlier this year that Sacramento would be joining NWSL, but... Lisa Baird didn't answer a question about who the ownership group was. And uh, maybe this answers it a tiny bit. Uh, You know, this is, um, I had actually just had a conversation with somebody a few days prior to this, this news coming out about, you know, the fact that we're coming to March here. And so we're 16, 17 months removed from Sacramento being really close to joining the NWSL for 2020 and that, you know, they cooled their jets, things kind of quieted, slowed maybe is the word. And then it was put off till summer and then summer comes summer, 2020, you know, six, eight months ago. And everybody around the league would tell you, Oh, they're coming in, they're coming in. And then there was, you know, the report from the athletic and, and everybody would tell you they're coming in and they just, they never acknowledged anything. The league never acknowledged anything. The The announcement, a formal announcement was always imminent if you spoke with someone behind the scenes, but never came. And then in January, as you said, Pardeep, um, Lisa Baird, she actually had said in December, even she didn't name Sacramento, but talked about kind of multiple expansion teams on, on our other pod. And uh, in January named Sacramento said they'd be welcoming them in 2022 uh, we got a schedule with them for an expansion draft that would be Angel City and Sacramento in December of this year. And, you know, even at that point, it's just been the weirdest possible series of events for what should be this thing that is super positive news for everybody. You know, huge news that you would want to hype to to everybody, right? And, and usually really straightforward news. Right, right. And, you know, even at that point, you know, Lisa Baird says that I shot a note to the Sacramento group and I got, instead of, I got like Ron Burkle's personal or maybe, you know, his actual company, um, a reply from that sort of communications group. And it was basically just a very vague kind of, we're looking forward to it. We don't have anything more to say, you know, this is usually something, I mean, even when they had the MLS announcement, you probably remember 
uh, the timeline of when that was is escaping me. It was definitely pre COVID because yeah. it was like, you know, it was like this massive party and it was live streamed. I mean, I remember watching it and because That's, people had teased it forever. People right. like Sacramento should be part of MLS. And then it finally yeah. happened. That, that's usually how these things go. So this has been the weirdest saga. And I've said this, like expansion is a frustrating, weird topic because it's always somebody thinks they're farther along than they are and they're not. And this has been like the opposite. And I've found it incredibly confusing, sketchy, um, you know, fill in the synonym about what's going on. And this only further complicates. I mean, the early word that we have here is that it doesn't necessarily affect or doesn't change Sacramento coming in the sense that they're not going to, to the degree that maybe they won't in MLS, but um, it's weird. I mean, to, to add some reporting to it, like Sacramento has people, I mean, we've seen the Jill Ellis report from the athletic, like Sacramento has people sitting on the board of governors already for the NWSL and has for some months. So uh, you know, the fact that it's not announced, and then we have this as sort of the this big news item, it's bizarre and it's concerning. It really is. I mean, we look, you've been a part of women's soccer for a long time. I have too. We've all been paying attention to it. If this is the weirdest we've ever seen, it really means it's very shocking and weird. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, I'll make the point too, like, even if this doesn't affect them, which is a silly statement to make in some way, right? Because obviously there's a change in the amount of liquid capital and, and money that they have and everything else. But even if it doesn't affect them coming into the NWSL, it does affect what them coming into the NWSL looks like because it was supposed to be, they were coming in with this MLS stadium, um, you know, this huge state of the art thing and and the MLS infrastructure and, you know, all of these in theory, much bigger, better things. And if that's not happening, but they are still committed to the NWSL and not that this is a bad thing per se, but, you know, they got this expansion bid based on those things. And now they would be coming in, what, utilizing the existing USL stadium with some improvements, you know, are those, what do those facilities look like? How do, how much did the money change here in the ownership group? I, I think, you know, in some ways, like MLS is kind of back to the drawing board with, okay, we're not going to bail on you, but if there's no owner, there's no team. Um, I, I think the NWSL needs to really think about, and maybe it's different in terms of the fact that maybe Sacramento is paid up already in a way that they haven't with MLS and there's something binding, but like the NWSL has other markets that have been knocking on the door. They have other ownership groups in the Bay Area an hour and a half down the road that want to be in and maybe you know, could have an MLS tie or be playing an MLS stadium or, you know, something bigger and badder, better package. So if I'm Lisa Baird and the current owners, I want some real hard answers. I mean, I would hope they were on the phone all weekend because like, look, there's other people that want to be in this league and there's some really sweet looking packages out there if they come through. So if you're not giving us what you promised, then we need to talk about what you're going to be because after 12, they probably press pause for a little bit. Maybe they go to 14, but we don't know that there are not that many spots available as far as we know in the NWSL. So they, they really need to be strategic about who's coming in. Right. And that's not to say that Sacramento now can't be an attractive destination when they do show up, but that has to be a priority and it has to be attractive in a lot of ways. You bring up that stadium. I, I, 
I mean, we're probably not out of the uh, phase yet where we're expecting every single NWSL team to be playing at these top class facilities. But at the same time, why would you want a new team that doesn't have the promise of that at least a little bit down the road, if not right away? Right, exactly. And I, I think, um, you, you know, these are these are also things that, like, Louisville happened before Lisa Baird. Sacramento was a player, an interested party, a very seriously interested party before Lisa Baird. So, you know, this is also, I imagine, you know, she's talked about fielding a lot of different calls. You know, you hear little things here and there. I don't think they're even necessarily far enough along some of them to be quote unquote reporting them in the sense that I'd almost think that's kind of irresponsible, but like, you know, you have to imagine that she has some markets or ownership groups that she's looking at saying, well, this really interests me. And, you know, it's like um, a coach takes over a team, right? These are not my players you know, but I'm going to make, I'm going to make do with, you know, what's working and I'm going to figure out what's not working. Um, This is a commissioner who's taken over, you know, um, a couple of expansion teams that were in the works before her. I mean, even Angel City was kind of being talked about before her. Um, so, you know, the, the current owners are also part of that conversation, obviously, but I, I think there's some things to figure out. I don't want to be doom and gloom on Sacramento because the early word, again, is is that we have anyway, is to not worry. But I mean, I've said this a lot and, and just to the point of we said how weird this is. I've heard so much of the like, the usual promise is it's coming, it's coming, and then it never comes, whatever it is, a city, a group. Um, so I've grown to be very skeptical of, you know, that and taking all that with a grain of salt. So in reverse here, the idea that everything's fine and, and the announcement's coming and that's coming, you know, I, I don't um, I don't take that at face value anymore. I haven't in a long time. For sure. It's, it's something that you just have to actually see, I think, to believe it. Um. Finally, it was a pretty busy week in U.S. soccer outside of the NWSL and outside of the She Believes Cup. They had an annual general meeting over the weekend. Uh, probably the most notable thing heading into it was that they elected a, or that they were going to elect a new vice president, and they did. They elected Bill Taylor, who, um, uh, I mean, to a certain degree, he, I mean, he definitely wasn't the most well-known candidate. Uh, former USMNT player Kobe Jones was in the mix. But um, he, just a couple of things that uh, he ran on, basically, and he did a survey, I mean, he answered a survey from the Athlete Council and said that his priorities as vice president, if he was elected, which he has been, would be recovering financially from the pandemic, growing the game through grassroots, uh, creating a better relationship between all of the U.S. soccer members, um, referee growth and retention, yeah, those are his those are his priorities heading into it. So he will be working with uh, Cindy Parlacone, obviously, who's still the president of U.S. Soccer. And Jeff, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think just, you know, it's an interesting um, the vote went to a couple rounds and, and seeing Kobe Jones in there, um, former player. Obviously, Cindy Parlacone is, is as well at the president level. Um, but you know, I, I think rightfully many have pointed out, you know, an opportunity to get a former player in there um, and obviously some diversity as well on, in the sort of C-level, uh, so to speak. It's a little different, I guess, as a nonprofit, but sort of the the upper management levels of U.S. soccer. So, um, 
you know, I, I think that'll probably be viewed as a little bit of a missed opportunity in, in a lot of ways, but, um, you know, I, I think we'll see that this is a, a group, I guess I should say a leadership group, at least with Parlo Cohn and Will Wilson that has talked a lot about being very different. I think Cindy Parlo Cohn has talked a lot recently and even on Saturday about diversity and inclusion. Um, and, you know, now there's a lot of work to be done on that front and, and another person, you know, sort of high in the ranks that, that needs to be working on that. And, and obviously I think you could also point out to some degree, um, you know, a missed opportunity in that sense to actually have that in action at a high level. For sure. I mean, I think we all know, despite whatever everybody's been talking about, there's a lot of work cut out for U.S. soccer leadership, and that's at all levels, considering while that, while the vice presidential uh, election was probably the biggest thing to look for, the biggest talking point out of that meeting was um, a six-minute racist uh, rant full of falsehoods from a member of the athlete council, Seth Yon. Uh, he was obviously allowed to speak before the uh, federation voted to uh, no longer enforce the policy of forcing people to stand for the national anthem, which that policy will no longer be in effect. They voted that out. 71% of people voted that it should not be in effect anymore, but like I said, there was a six-minute racist rant that U.S. soccer didn't really do much about in the moment. Um, they issued a statement that said almost nothing. And Seth Yan, who I won't repeat anything he said, because like I said, it was very racist and not full of facts. There were no facts in it. Uh, pretended to apologize uh, on Sunday morning, but it wasn't an apology. He actually said he wasn't apologizing. So, I mean, it's it's a mess. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, you know, the I think we've, annual general meetings have the sort of open platform. And I think we've um, seen through the years, I mean, it's, it feels like a while ago, but it was only a few years ago, we had the, uh, the wide open sort of presidential race. And, and that was, I think there were a lot of open platforms, um, you know, for, for anybody. So um, it's, yeah, I, I think it's something that, you know, the, the thing about the policy too is that it hasn't actually been in effect for when, when did they repeal it? Almost a year ago already. Yeah, I think um, so. So this was just the formal vote to say, we've already done this, but we have to sort of legally by our own governance have this voted on. Um, so, you know, the thing was already, you know, no longer in effect really um, at least by practical standards. Yeah. And I mean, I, heard about this and was pretty exasperated uh i still am in some ways uh you know one of the things that look i don't think u.s soccer could necessarily predict that somebody would go on a racist rant during their annual general meeting but maybe they should have apparently seth yan has tweets that indicate that he's a racist so 
I don't know, maybe they could have foreseen some of it. But I think, look, a lot of people have rightfully criticized this organization for not prioritizing inclusion. And I still think, regardless of how much talk that the people in charge do, they still don't seem adequately prepared for it. And just, you know, I'll spell it out in case, you know, somebody mystics, they were enjoying their weekend. But um, after the racist rant, neither Cindy Parlow Cone nor Will Wilson managed much on the topic in a post-meeting uh, media availability. I believe both of them claimed they didn't hear much of it which look to be, I think there were a lot of people that didn't watch it live and managed to catch up on the situation. So it's, I don't think it's a good look for them to claim that they didn't hear it. And even if they only found out some of it, that they probably should be able to condemn it pretty cleanly. Um, U.S. Soccer's statement didn't condemn it cleanly either. They also gave a guy six minutes to say whatever he wanted and none of that was useful information for starters but it was actually hurtful and inaccurate information you know uh what uh i saw becky sauerbrunn's statement around the same time as they issued theirs and she while i mean it wasn't a very long statement it would take a very long time to correct all of the uh misinformation he put in his rant uh but she took the time to correct some of it, even though she obviously wasn't personally responsible for giving him the platform. U.S. Soccer didn't do that. Um, at one point, Cindy Parlocone said that the important thing is to have diversity of thought. And while obviously Seth Yon is entitled to his opinion, I don't think he should be entitled to go on a six-minute racist rant during an annual general meeting of U.S. soccer. And they didn't apologize for that. They, they did try to correct that. I don't think it, I don't think by giving him, I don't know, a slap on the wrist at the very least, I don't think that actually encourages people who do have different thoughts to feel like they have a great space to voice them in U.S. soccer circles. I think they have a lot of work to do, and I still remain unconvinced that they know where to begin on that work. I don't know if that rambled a little bit, but... No, I, I think, um, you know, it's it's a fair... Um, I think the very, you know, the latter there, too, of, of what, uh, what still needs to be done, obviously, is, is I think, significant, um, probably only, you know, scratching the surface, um, in terms of, you know, I've, I've seen DEI, um, just kind of used now we're, we're using it like it's like an acronym that's just been kind of thrown around. So uh, it needs to be sort of obviously followed up on, um, particularly at a level, you know, I think there's a different, it's incumbent upon a U.S. soccer. I mean, again, these are things we forget. We've talked about it in like the equal pay saga, but, you know, this is a, a nonprofit even, and not a, a private business. So I, I think that adds even a, another layer to, 
you know, conversations around like what are sort of the responsibilities of the organization. Um, so, you know, I, I think that, um, yeah, a, a long way to go on sort of that as a starting point um, or, or getting started on that really. Cause I think, uh, you know, I, I think there is, you know, probably a little bit more behind the scenes than we, I don't want to say that we give credit for, because we don't, we, I guess we have to know that it's, it's happening in that sense. But um, I, I was a little bit encouraged by some of the things we saw with the athlete council, at least, you know, electing some younger folks, um, some diversity sort of in those recent elections. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it's, I don't think it's something that will be done talking about anytime soon, obviously, in, in terms of the scope of the conversation anyway. Yeah. And it is worth mentioning, by the way, that Lori, Lenz, Lori Lindsay, who I believe is also a member of the Athlete Council, has publicly said that she would like uh, Seth Yon to resign. Um, there isn't, I believe, right now a process in place to remove him. Uh, he was just elected in November. But uh, that's something that at least one person has gotten on board with maybe more by in between, you know, us recording and this going up. But like I said, that's worth mentioning. Um, thanks, Jeff, for the conversations. And thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll be back after a quick break. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Equalizer podcast. We'll be right back to that in a minute, but just want to make sure that you're aware of our other podcasts from the Equalizer Network. Kicking Back, it's one that I host, and each week we talk to personalities from across the sport of women's soccer, coaches, players, executives, plenty of great guests throughout Season 1 from U.S. coaches, Vlatko Anonofsky, Jill Ellis, to players like Crystal Dunn, Becky Sauerbrunn. NWSL Commissioner Lisa Baird, so many great guests, and we're coming up on Season 2 pretty soon, and you are not going to want to miss what we have in store for you. So go ahead and check out Kicking Back. If you're listening on a podcast platform right now, you can find us there as well. We're on all the podcast platforms, and we're looking forward to another exciting season of really in-depth interviews and fun interviews with our latest guests. That's it for me, and let's get you back to the Equalizer podcast. everyone. Thanks for sticking around. Before I give you the teased segment two, I'd like you to invite anybody who'd like to, to rate and subscribe uh, and review to the Equalizer podcast. It gets us more listeners. It gets us a good chance at more listeners anyway. So if you could do that, that'd be swell. So the She Believes Cup wasn't just a big deal for the USWNT, but it was also a big deal for Canada too. They got to play for the first time under new head coach Bev Priestman and they got to play against some pretty uh, high quality opponents to break down not just the She Believes Cup finale for Canada but the entire tournament is Equalizer Soccer's senior reporter Harjeet Johal. Harjeet how are you? I'm doing really good today how are you doing? Not too bad not too bad. So let's dive right in. Um, Canada wrapped up the She Believes Cup with a game against Brazil. They lost it 2-0. They conceded both goals in the first half. It was uh, Dabinia in the 15th minute and Julia Bianchi in the 39th. 
how did you feel about that one? Because I think, I mean, the, the overwhelming thing for me is the defensive performance, particularly early on. Yeah, the defensive performance in the first half against Brazil, it was disjointed, kind of chaotic. You know, they had a lot of opportunities to clear the ball away from danger, and they didn't do that. So uh, I would say it was the least promising half they had in that tournament, that first half there where they conceded two goals. I put that down to inexperience, having a lot of new players in the mix, especially at fullback and just – you're going up against Brazil, a, a top team that's really had cannabis number lately. So it was a mixture of a combination of things. And, you know, a, against a team like Brazil, you can't really give them a lot of opportunities. You can't go out and give them, you know, second chances, third chances when you're not clearing the ball away. And I thought Canada uh, did that. Brazil made them pay. You know, they were sloppy. They were disjointed, as I mentioned. And against Brazil, you can't do that. So from that perspective I thought that the first half against Brazil it was, it was not very good they rebounded in the second half they didn't concede a goal they can, created a lot of chances to score themselves as we know you know they didn't score they've had trouble scoring so that Brazil game I think I think it was a disappointment because they're both tied in the eighth in FIFA rankings you know Canada should be on par with this team yeah they're missing a lot of players but you it's still 11 v 11 so I would have expected a better performance in that last game. Um, you talk about the rebound. What you were you impressed with how they rebounded? And I mean, because if you look at some of the stats, it looks like a pretty even game at the end. I was impressed that they kept them off the score sheet. And it looks like they they shifted tactics a little bit and kind of took it to Brazil more so instead of kind of waiting and sitting back and absorbing the pressure. But you also have to look at uh, Brazil. They took Marta off at halftime. So uh, they were missing their star player, as was Canada, without Christine Sinclair. So I was more surprised that they were able to keep Brazil off the score sheet and really neutralize any dangerous opportunities that they had uh, against Canada. But again, the scoring is the big, the big issue with this team and not having that it's an immense problem heading into the Tokyo Olympics. Um, uh, I think I agree with you that there were just a lot of problems to look at. Were there any, po- before we shift into a bigger picture, because now we have a few bodies, uh, I mean, a body of games to look at. Were there any positives that you took away from that game? In that game specifically? Yeah. It, it's hard to find any. If you look at the bigger picture as a whole or, uh, the previous two games and kind of look at it as a, a, a tournament where Canada had a new coach, a lot of younger players. From that, that perspective, yeah, I, th- I think it was. I think you've got to look at little tiny success stories within the camp and within the tournament. You have Evelyn Vienne getting her first three appearances for Canada. That's great for her to see her out there and kind of get a shot. I thought Vanessa Giles was a surprising player for Canada and she's got only three caps out there and she was clearing the ball all over the place against the U.S. And they call her the magnet. So I thought she was impressive. I thought Shalina Zadorsky was a, an anchor back there without Buchanan and Lawrence. And you missed Alicia Chapman in that last game. So I thought Shalina kind of, you know, she took on that kind of anchor role back there in the back line without the veterans. So I thought she was uh, a strong performance from her in this tournament. And I was especially impressed by Gabrielle Carl, too, the young player 
uh, that Canada had at right back. So I was impressed by little small successes within the team. Overall, not as much. But if you look at the the big picture, it's good that they got the games in and these younger players were able to get an opportunity. Yeah, that leads very perfectly into what I was going to ask you about the fact that Canada was missing a lot of different players. But I think, I, I don't know if it's too harsh for me to say, and feel free to answer this, but the tournament was a little bit all over the place for Canada. But, you know, those little success stories, I thought that's probably, I mean, that that's pretty impressive in itself that a few players who maybe you wouldn't have expected to be there did actually get the chance to play and perform. Yeah, that's that's a bright spot for Canada. I thought they kind of peaked in that first game and they kind of slowly went in the opposite trending direction in the next two games. The the game against the U.S. was obviously their, their top performance, holding the number one team in the world to one goal in a coach's debut with Bev Priestman. So that was... That was fantastic to see that from a Canadian perspective. Against Argentina, they really kind of had a lot of possession, but with Canada, they didn't do very much with it. And it took a, a stoppage time goal in the last couple of minutes to earn a win. So that was a surprise as well. They kind of, you know, they want to attack on the counter with Michelle Prince, Becky, Leon, Evelyn Vienne, Deanne Rose. But, you know, kind of absorbing the pressure and attacking on the uh, flanks is what they're doing. So when they have the ball, you can't really do that because the other team's sitting in like Argentina, you've got to kind of break them down and they're, you know, they've got to block, they've got the bus parked back there. So that was a struggle. And, you know, I really expected more one goal, you know, that's not, it's not very good against the uh, 31st ranked team. Brazil, I believe, put four past them. And then against Brazil, as we talked about, another uh, surprise performance. So, yeah, uh, a few successes in that in this tournament. Like I mentioned, the U.S. game, obviously the brightest game that we saw. I thought Michelle Prince was fantastic. She created a lot of chances, a lot of opportunities with her pace, and she really gave the U.S. defenders some challenges. And then Janine Becky, she had two great chances, which she missed. And overall, this tournament, you know, Becky and the other forwards, they missed their chances. Fleming missed hers, so... I think that's a thing the team needs to work on going forward as they get ready for that England game in April. Do you think that might be a problem that gets solved a little bit with somebody like Christine Sinclair back in the fold and maybe a couple other people who had to miss out? No, I don't think so. Uh, I mentioned this in my article. I did a a bigger deep dive uh, with the offensive struggles that Canada has had. It's really a lot of the same roster that we saw at the 2019 World Cup. And, and since that time, you got to go back to April uh, 2019. You know, they've played 10 top 10 teams and they've got three goals in those games, eight losses, two draws. So they're not scoring goals. And you've got Christine in the mix for most of those games. You know, she's 37 years old. And we've been talking about how she needs a supporting cast. I mean, we've been talking about it for years. It's not, it's not a new thing. It's not a new story. So. Someone has to step up, and we don't know who's going to step up, what's it going to take, maybe a shift in tactics, maybe a formation, crosses, something, maybe Bev can pull something out of her sleeve. We'll have to see what Canada is going to do, because it's the same roster, so someone has to find a solution. It's got to come within the roster that Canada has. Yeah, I guess that continuing mystery of who will help, or I guess maybe one day replace Christine Sinclair continues. 
Um, speaking of Bev Priestman, how, I mean, three games is maybe a small sample size, but still it's better than one. How do you feel about her with this Canadian team after three games against, I mean, at least in Brazil and the United States, two pretty impressive opponents? I think it's a good enough sample size. I think the players, just speaking to them, they sound rejuvenated, they sound excited, they sound motivated, confident. And I don't think we saw that within the last year with Kenneth Hunter-Moller in charge. You kind of didn't see a confident, kind of cocky, swagger side that Canada kind of has. You know, they think they can go beat anyone in the world on any given day, as we've heard in previous years. And I think Bev has brought that mentality back that they that they're going to be uh, competing with the best in the world. And so um, the players like Zadorsky and Viennes have said what a great communicator she is. They've really been enjoying uh, practices and training sessions in the first camp. So I think Bev has brought a, a, a bunch of fresh air within the team and they sound uh, excited and motivated to get going for the Tokyo Olympics. So I think she's just what the team needs to kind of you know, kickstart them into uh, gear heading into the Olympics. So uh, I think it's three games in. We'll see what else uh, she can do and what she can bring. But overall, I think it's a good uh, start having her in the mix and kind of implementing and tweaking her ideas and her tactics. And for anybody listening who maybe isn't, you know, as tuned into the Canadian national team as you are, I mean, after all, you're here as an expert. But uh, for anybody like I said, who is listening. Um, do you have, uh, do you think that there's like a clear picture of who might be on that 18 person roster heading to the Olympics? Is it going to be a lot of the same people we've seen at the world cup and, you know, just in the past for Canada, do you think any new faces might emerge? I think it's going to be a lot of veterans and you've got to be able to mix in a couple young players, a couple up-and-coming players. It's going to be really hard to crack the lineup. As we mentioned, only 18 uh, players make an Olympic roster, and Canada has a lot of veterans, a lot of experience, and, and that's kind of the core makeup of the team, from, you know, from strikers all the way into net. So uh, getting a spot on the forward line, midfield, defense, even in goal, it's going to be tough for uh, a player to kind of break through. I think maybe... Vanessa Gilles, I think she's got a really strong chance to make it as a, a center back, maybe backing up um, Zadorsky and Buchanan. So I think she uh, is a good candidate to maybe make the roster. But then again, how many defenders do you take? I think Quinn in the midfield would be a good option for Canada. I think they bring a lot to the team and hopefully uh, Quinn has a spot at the Olympics. So I think that's another player we should watch for. But, you know, forwards, Evelyn Viennes, I think she's going to be in tough to try and make this team because you've already got Sinclair, Becky, Leon, Prince, and Rose. And, you know, that's, that's a lot of players to kind of crack through, and I don't know how many forwards Canada will want to take. So, you know, it's really tough to see who's going to crack this Olympic roster in midfield. Uh, Sophie Schmidt, Desiree Scott, Diana Matheson, those are three veteran midfielders. Uh, you've got Fleming as well. So we'll see what Bev decides, but maybe – Maybe one, two, maybe three is a stretch. Young players make this team. We'll have to see what happens, who's healthy, who's fit, who's in form. And so that's something we can watch for as Canada uh, gets set for Tokyo. Um, one thing that I just thought of, um, 
obviously Canada had a coaching vacancy for a little while. They filled it. But do you think that having a little bit extra time with the Olympics getting pushed a year might have helped in a certain way? Or is it just that there's a time crunch because Bev Priestman didn't happen until March of uh, the year of the Olympics to start actually playing her team, uh, giving her players minutes? I think it's good in the sense that you have a fresh face and Bev is able to implement our, her strategies and kind of get a hold on the team. From that standpoint, it's good. You know, if we didn't have a pandemic, obviously that would be wonderful. And, you know, the Olympics would have already happened and you would have had Kenneth Hunter Roller in charge and we would have been already talking about the results. So uh, he would have been in charge. Maybe he would still be coaching the team now. We don't know. So it's uh, fun to, to kind of guess and think about that. So uh, I think it's good that Bev has this opportunity to take the team to the Olympics. You know, with the World Cup in Australia, that's another uh, big tournament coming up. So I guess this we'll see what happens this summer and maybe the team can kind of improve and build on what happens in Tokyo. Also, just for anybody listening, I'm pretty sure I said March. These games happened in February. I don't know where my mind is. <laughs> um, one final thing before we uh, finish recapping Canada at the She Believes Cup. Um, we're talking about the Olympics. So I was looking forward to that. Based on the performances in this tournament, where do you think Canada ranks amongst the world's top teams? Do you think maybe they remain in contention for, you know, a medal at the Olympics? Or do you think that maybe they're a step back or something like that? Yeah, I definitely think they're in contention for a medal. I mean, it's a smaller field. Uh, you've got, you know, any opportunity, the same opportunity as any other team. And you look at the last two Olympics, Canada has meddled. They won back-to-back bronze, as, as they will tell you. So I think they have a great opportunity to go and win a medal. You know, you don't have to, you just have to get hot. You just have to go on a nice run, win a few games, get to the knockout stage. And, you know, with the players that they have, they're certainly capable. They've done it before. And, you know, we'll see what happens. There's a lot of other teams that are going to be their top 10 teams that Canada has struggled against. So, you know, they have to find a way to win a game, even if it's one nothing. You know, if it goes to penalties, a win is a win. So, yeah, I think they're in contention. I think they have an opportunity. They're at the Olympics. You know, as long as you're at the Olympics, you have a shot. So we'll see what, what transpires. Cool. Well, I'll be looking forward to the Olympics. Um, switching Gears a little bit, but still on Canada. Obviously, there are a ton of Canadian players in the NWSL. And just this week, the league announced its list of allocated players. And obviously, there are a lot of familiar faces from last year. But the big changes were that new uh, allocated players for Canada are Bianca St. George, Aaron McLeod, and Quinn. And I believe the only player that... Um, didn't uh, carry over from last year. Shalina Zadorsky, who obviously isn't playing in the league right now, she opted to stay in the FAWSL with Tottenham. Um, Anything revealing there for you? Yeah, I would have liked to have seen Evelyn Viennes allocated with Sky Blue. Uh, She's a young player. She's, you know, going to be in her second season in the NWSL. And, you know, I think she's part of the future with the national team for Canada. So, uh, I was a little surprised to not see her allocated. Perhaps it's a small sample size and the, the Federation wants to see more from her. Uh, maybe they had a limit of 10 Canadian players. 
Uh, we don't know what the, the salary, the cost structure was for uh, Evelyn Viennes and then maybe uh, older, maybe a veteran player, maybe uh, someone else, maybe it's, it's different. So we'll see if she's allocated in the next season. So yeah, I thought Evelyn Vienne should have been allocated, but then you have to think about who do you take off for Canada. So yeah, that's a, that's a decision that's above my pay grade. <laughs> Fair enough. And um, I don't think we spent a lot of time talking about Bianca St. George, but I do just want to mention that she went and I just find it very impressive that she went from being a draft pick and starting for the Chicago Red Stars in a very short season and went to become a an allocated player for Canada. I find that very impressive. Yeah, I agree. We'll see if she's fit to be able to play uh, for Canada against England on April 13th. I don't know if you're on TikTok. I'm not on TikTok, but apparently she has a torn... <laughs> meniscus that she uh, told everyone about and she's going to be rehabbing her injury and telling us all about it so uh, we'll be able to keep up to date on that thanks to her so hopefully she's fit and she's able to be in contention for Tokyo as well and you know she has a great season with Chicago so uh, yeah she's a promising young player for Canada as well and we wish her a healthy return to the pitch. I'm not on TikTok either, but it seems between Bianca St. George's announcement and the fact that the Portland Thorns have a TikTok deal now that we people might need to be on the whoa-so TikTok beat. What a time to be alive, folks. <laughs> um, I've asked a lot of questions, but um, there is actually a listener question that... Uh, is very relevant to our conversation. So thank you very much for Annie Green for sharing this question on Facebook. I think it's actually pretty interesting. The question is, do you think Janine Becky has lost grit from playing in a more technical slash less aggressive league in the FAWSL and would benefit from coming back to the NWSL? That is, a, that. that is a very good question. Annie, thank you very much for that. I don't know if she's lost grit, but I think maybe not playing consistently. I think maybe that's, you know, hurt maybe her confidence or maybe her form for a club and country. I think, you know, she's been playing a bit of right back as well, and you know, she's not a right back for Canada. So I think, you know, I don't know that it's hurt her grit or or something, her toughness perhaps. I think maybe she just needs to get a run of games, you know, get some some minutes from for Manchester City. So whether she wants to stay in uh, the FAWSL or come back to the NWSL, I think that's for her to decide. You know, there's a lot of other leagues as well, and it's just finding a good fit for yourself and, you know, finding a, a league and a team that you feel comfortable with. And so we'll, we'll see if she gets some more minutes uh, uh, with, with Manchester heading back to, uh, to England now. So hopefully she's able to get some form and get some minutes because she's a huge part of Canada's offensive attack, you know, 31 goals. So she's, she's, she's proven that she can score goals. So I think she needs an opportunity. I think, you know, maybe the confidence is where it needs to be. I know she had a few posts on social media and she really owned uh, the missed chances that Canada had or that she had at this tournament. And I think, you know, that's admirable to see because not always do we see an athlete kind of standing up and, you know, answering the tough questions when the team's not scoring and maybe they're not going so well. So uh, I commend her for being able to speak up to us and, you know, kind of sharing what she's feeling. So hopefully she's able to bounce back and uh, be an integral part for Canada going forward because they need her 
uh, on the pitch. They need her scoring goals and setting them up. And she's a huge part of uh, the red and white. Yeah. Like you said, Canada's struggling for goals. That's... Did I, did I mention that at all? Are you sure? I think, you know what? Maybe people need the reminder. I'm kidding. Maybe hopefully Bev Priestman isn't listening to this. <laughs> um, yeah, I think probably it's unlikely that she comes back to the NWSL on such a time frame, but I don't know. Weirder things have happened. It's women's soccer. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that was a great conversation about Canada. I learned a lot. Um, thank you very, very much for taking the time today. I appreciate that. And thanks- thank you very much for having me on today. It's always great to talk about Canada and what they're doing on the pitch. Well, hopefully uh, whoever is responsible for booking you books you again. Canada will be playing more games. They'll always be playing games. Um, anyway, so that's about it today for the Equalizer podcast. Uh, as always, I'd like to thank our producer, Jacqueline Purdy. She does great work, and I have been bad at thanking her, so I'm going to be good about that. Um, stay safe, everyone, and we'll catch you next week. Christy Mewis being in there for the amount of time she was um, is certainly, you know, a further indication. I've seen her referred to as a bubble player or, a, or a, I think long shot was one of the ones that got a little bit of attention this past week. But if you've been paying attention and watching and listening to what Vladko Andonovsky is saying that he wants and doing. You know, Christy Mewis is very firmly in this picture. Breaking up is hard to do, but when it comes to your wireless carrier, you should have left a while ago. You deserve better. Xfinity Mobile. Break free from the big three. Get unlimited with 5G included for $30 a month when you get four lines on Xfinity Mobile. Prices may vary and are subject to change. Reduce speeds at 20 gigabytes per line.